Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Zero Lift. You're here with Ryan, Lenny. Happy New Year. And John. Don't forget my coffee. You got to have the coffee. I'm doing tea this morning. Today we're talking about uh, taking a train ride. Timing is everything. And on what I wish I was driving, John picks an ugly car. So that's what we're talking about today. Let's talk about what we've done this week. Uh, John, you've got some two-wheel action going on, you said? Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got the Ducati up on the lift, and I've got my Triumph Daytona on the ground, but they're both like halfway torn apart. And I think I talked about starting some work on the Ducati last episode, but um, you know it's nice because it's twenty degrees outside. Eh, it's not that cold. It's like forty degrees out, but uh, um. I'm not riding a motorcycle in this. I'm just saying that. And it's wet. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I had to measure some, like, custom brake lines and clutch lines for both of those bikes, actually, because I went with, I don't know. If you're in the motorcycle world and you need a, ma- like, one of the key track upgrades to make to your bike is a Brembo RCS master cylinder for your brake. It makes the brake feel like I think I, I again I think I talked about this last time. Anyway, um, I went with basically all custom master cylinders for my clutch and brake on both the Ducati and the Triumph, and I'm just test fitting stuff. And I raised the bars up on both of them so it's a little bit higher because I think I'm getting old and it made those bikes a little fatiguing to ride. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So I need custom brake and clutch lines, and I rerouted a bunch of the electronics. And I'm actually doing a bunch of engine work to the Ducati. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going together on both those bikes. Because I was going to sell the Daytona, and then I decided one day. I don't know why. I was like, I'm not going to sell this thing. I've had this bike since 2008. It's paid off. And it's it's rad. It's totally rad. It it's like a little Ferrari. It it just it ah. revs like thirteen thousand RPM and shits flames out the exhaust every time you <laughs> every time you downshift. Like why? Why would you get rid of that? Yeah, why would I get rid of that? I I, don't know. I just need to I just need to clean it up. Maybe throw away some spares. You know, downsize the collection a little bit. Um, yeah, no, nah, that's. I mean, I've been I've been in the garage for a lot of this weekend when I'm not playing Horizon or flying fake fighter jets in VR. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, talking about weather there. You said twenty. Well, it was negative twenty here yesterday. Uh, so quite a bit of a difference. Had a little bit of snow. I didn't have to drive in that, but I did actually have to take a cruise. Uh, I'm pretty much pure ice on Friday. I had to do a, a trip up to Sioux City, hour and a half, and the whole Omaha area was covered in fog and mist, and it was about 18 degrees out, and so everybody decided the uh, speed limit on the interstate was 45 deg- forty-five miles per hour, um, except for people with trucks. Obviously, they're going your typical 
70 because uh, they just don't care. But yeah, just black ice everywhere. Uh, didn't know where it was. And then it was it was interesting because as I got further north, I got out of the sketch uh, situation of like, I don't know if I can go fast or if my brakes are going to lock up. Uh, then I was fine. And then coming back south, it was like, okay, where do I need to start slowing down and like figuring out that if I break now or turn, my car's just going to go off into the uh, the atmosphere. So that was kind of exciting. I then got back from that trip and immediately jumped on dirt um, and proceeded to go rally in Sweden because I, <laughs> I like hurting myself. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so it was just a... Uh, snowy and rally uh from actual driving conditions uh, the big thing is that drove me nuts was the amount of people that didn't have their lights on uh like consciously turning their lights on in that situation where it's like low vis almost yeah i can see your car when you're close to me but like turn your lights on and then the lack of turn signals mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. heard that com- that, heard that, that. wish i didn't but i did that also that also combined with folks in case you didn't know uh you need to be more than one car length back from somebody in those type of conditions like three to four is ideal because your brakes don't work um i'm the type of person that even at stoplights uh in pure icy conditions i'm almost a car length back from the person in front of me at stoplights because if somebody rear ends me uh prevents me from rear ending the person in front of me etc domino effect essentially um so just drive safe in icy conditions if you live somewhere warm and you don't have to deal with ice i hate you um but for those of us that do live in icy conditions ryan i got two questions i got two answers one growing up in the midwest do you remember how everybody that was a shitty driver would just blame literally everything on black ice even if it was like the dead of summer (laughs) If it was summer, 120 <laughs> degrees outside, I was like, oh, man, you uh, wrapped your car around a telephone pole this weekend. Yeah, black ice, man. Like, yeah, in, in yeah. July, huh? Um, two. That, those flash freezes, man. It'll I'm get tell- you every yeah, time. I'm telling get you. get you every time. Uh, two, favorite car and dirt rally so far. Favorite car and dirt rally so far. So, number one, uh, people don't do that as much in the summer, but, yes, it's definitely uh, – it was all over the social media people bitching about the driving conditions. Uh, it's typical. It's the first fleck of snow. People's blown up their social media with it. And my favorite car so far, um, what have I really enjoyed? I, I don't know if I have a favorite one yet. I, I Like I said, for real drive, I've been enjoying the Alpine A110. But yeah. I'm really putting a lot of work in with the Lancia in the H1 class. Um, just to really learn the tracks so at a Fulvia. slow pace. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yep. Uh, not the Stratos. I do own a. I, I do own the Stratos though. Um, and I've really focused on front wheel because I'm able to understand and control that a lot better. Rear wheel drive still is just all over the place, and I'm more focused on controlling the car almost than like being able to hear my co-driver. So I've yeah, yeah. mostly been focusing on those. Um, I have an R2, like a faster front-wheel drive car, but I, I can't remember what it is. I have, like, the Subi and stuff. But So so in the uh, H2 class, the rear-wheel drive class, um, mm-hmm. Alpine's a legend, right? The Ford Escort feels like a rocket ship. It's fast as F, and it spins a lot. Um, 
but the uh, the Opel Cadet and the Fiat 131 are actually my two of my favorite cars in the game on that rear-wheel drive. Um, okay. I just I don't know why. They're not quite as fast as the Ford, but they, they're front-engine rear-wheel drive, and they drift really well, um, and they just feel really well-balanced. So I would... Before you step into a Stratos or try that Escort out, I would try the Fiat and the Opel. I think I have the Fiat for my H2 or the Opel, one of the two. I also really enjoy the 208 quite a bit. Uh, I think that's one of them. Yeah, they're great. I'm still learning them. There's a lot more in there. Uh, John, I know you're a big fan of Opels, so I'm, I tend to try to grab those if I can. Yeah, that should be part. Hey, Opel, <laughs> Opel should be part of the podcast drinking game because it's been on the show <laughs> twice which is two times more than most people will ever interact with the brand. And it has been a, uh, a, a, a piece of consternation for me every time it's on here. Um, yeah. John just really likes the Opal. It's that, uh, and, I, and I've brought you that pain twice now. It's been me. Sick lightning yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Sick lightning I think, I think most people don't even know what Opal is. Uh, also, I want to correct something. <laughs> I said that Vauxhall was a competing brand to Holden in Australia. It's not. Vauxhall is GM's UK subsidiary. Holden is their Australian <laughs> subsidiary. So um, just correcting For myself. those that are following along. Yeah. Bang, bang, editor's note. Editor's note. That's what I got. <laughs> Lenny, what, what have you done the past couple of days here? Uh, nothing car related. I've just been uh, spending this New Year's sort of time hanging out at the house. I've been. I picked up a book, a new book. Uh, it's called "Skin in the Game" uh, by Nassim Nicholas Talib. Uh, pretty interesting. It's more of a, a mind piece. It goes over um, uh, hidden asymmetrics in daily life. So, like how to interact with the difference between theory and practice, academia in the real world, things of that nature. It kind of gives uh, vignettes throughout history. And then it goes on a sort of narrative on um, topics such as uncertainty and the reliability of knowledge, um, symmetry in human affairs, and uh, information sharing and transactions. It's kind. Of, it's very much a a brain piece. Kind of get the That's, mind flowing. Sounds like a big uh, brain book. Have you read yeah. it while sitting in the GTR? No, <laughs> I have not. Uh, what would that make it better? Or uh, I mean, uh, it would make it something correlated, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know if if the if that's like a Zen space for you. I, f- I feel like sitting in in the bucket seats and reading a book would be something that I would do if I had that type of car. Uh, I don't think the bucket seats were made for reading; they were made for <laughs> racing. So I'll reserve them to that. Like uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find another chair for know, a reading spot. My buckets are. But yeah, this this book has really oh. got my. Uh, I didn't say that the bucket seats were uncomfortable to read in. I just said that they were not made to read in. And so I'll find my own throne, my own reading throne somewhere else, you know? Okay. Okay. You sound so German. Right but yeah, that's... <laughs> These buckets that's, that's what I've been up to. Yes, they have one function. Uh, it's racing. You're always going meta on us. Uh, human knowledge and... Oh yeah, I'm interact. I'm sort of like uh, in a constant ex- existential crisis, so you know I try to keep my purpose uh, directed. Keep your purpose directed. 
You heard well, it here first. I think that's kind of <laughs> what we're going to be talking about today, if I'm understanding it correctly. Uh, we're talking about valve train, which kind of keeps the, the direction of everything in your engine working. But I could be wrong. Uh, again, I am the humble noob here, uh, being taught by a man on a soapbox and a man having an existential crisis. So you are on the same boat as me, uh, or in the same car, depending on what type of seat you want to sit in. Either way, John, why don't you take us away on one of your beautiful Tech Talk soapboxes? As the master of soap. Um, sure. So we're talking valve train today, kids. And if you have kept up with us from the start, you know, we've done some tech episodes and we've talked about the four cycles of an engine. Um, the valve train specifically is what makes a two-stroke engine a two-stroke engine. I'm sorry. Wow. Woo. Whoosh. Hello, John. Hold where on. are you going with that? Where are you going? The valve train is what makes a four-stroke <laughs> engine a four-stroke engine. Sorry, I was thinking two-stroke, and that's what came out of my mouth. And motorcycles. Well, it, yeah. But most, I mean, motorcycles, most of them nowadays are four-stroke. But uh, we'd mentioned two-stroke engines in the past. We'd mentioned rotaries in the past, right? And those both specifically don't have valve trains. So that mm-hmm. is a four-stroke thing. Because, you know, LOL, piston go burnt. Pistons go up and down. Now, whether your engine is a two- or a four-stroke engine and how those strokes are broken up, that's dependent upon the valve train or if it doesn't have a valve train the ports so we're talking valves today so when the crankshaft spins the pistons are connected to we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because go listen to our older episodes for that rabbit hole uh but there is a belt or a chain or in some cases gears that connect to gears that are connected to the camshafts And so when the crank spins, it also spins the camshafts. And what camshafts are is a stick with some weird kind of teardrop-shaped bumps on them. And those bumpy poos push. So like one end, it's like, like I said, it's teardrop. So one end's long and one end's short. So when that long end comes, it pushes down on a valve stem. And that causes the valve to open. So... A valve is just a mushroom-shaped piece of metal that's the the mushroom end of it. The the wide end is in the combustion chamber. And Shout out, PA fam. Hey. Um, and so when the camshaft <laughs> pushes on the top of the valve, it causes that valve to protrude into the combustion chamber, and that opens... A port. So normally when a camshaft is not being pressed upon, it is recessed into the cylinder head and it closes a hole. It seals a hole in the cylinder head. And so when it's pushed on, it protrudes out from that hole and it unshrouds that hole and allows air and fuel to come through the port into the combustion chamber. And then as the camshaft rotates, that extended side passes by the valve and then there's a spring that's attached to the valve that causes that valve to then retract. So it's spring pressure that keeps the valves closed. So there's a spring. John, I'm going to let you continue there. Please, go ahead. Uh, but ju- just to say it in sort of a little bit more layman's terms, John, so um, Ryan, sorry. Um, from You have the camshaft. There's a sort of pulley attached to the outside of it from yep. the block. 
Yep. That's attached to either a belt or a chain, which yep. goes upward out, outside the engine, usually like exterior from the head and the block. There's usually a cover uh, protecting it. That is attached to cam gears, uh, either one or two, yep. uh, depending on if it's a single single cam, single overhead cam or dual. Yep. That okay. cam gear is attached to the camshafts, which then free roll onto rocker arm stoppers down the valve springs, valve train, yada, 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 what John was just saying. Yeah, well, and it depends on your the valve arrangement, how that, the interface between the camshaft and the valve itself is dependent on the design of it, but in ba- in a basic, right. a basic thing, the camshaft spins around and it pushes on the valves, and that causes the valves to extend, which opens a hole. Uh, okay, kind of like a pogo so, stick, kind of like a pogo stick, in a way. It's really basic. That's I mean, this is really super simple. So basically, is. a gear is. is a gear is essentially control a belt gear system is controlling a long shaft that is teardrop oscillating on top of the valves, yep. which are letting which is is part of the whole uh, suck, squeeze, bang, blow process. Yep. It's the top bit of it, mm-hmm. and this is what is allowing your fuel intake. And also your air to go out. So it is essentially the top portion of the whole process of the explosions. Yeah, it is. Uh, so the and the way it kind of actuates is if anybody's jumped on a pogo stick, right? So like, you know, when you jump on the pogo stick, there's that the top half of the pogo goes down and then it springs back up, right? So you jumping on the pogo stick is essentially the camshaft extending on the valve. And then when the pogo stick springs back up, that's what happens when the cam passes over the valve and then the valve comes back into the head. The difference is instead of doing bouncy things, you're pushing a stick into the cylinder head, essentially. Okay, so that's pretty pretty easy. Now, I, yep. And that's the thing. Something that most people are familiar with is their timing belt going bad exactly. and things like that. And that is essentially what's... <clears throat> I mean, I've replaced that belt and I don't know anything. So like... Uh, I'm familiar of that actual like belt system and being able to pull that off and see the outside of the engine. Now, the part that I really had the question on is I'm understanding this and seeing this in a single cam. So that is one of these shafts versus I'm guessing the, which is the S O H C you see on the top of your engine cover. Wrong. Is that correct? Wrong. Okay. So this is where, that's why I'm asking. (laughs) That's why I'm asking. So, so that's something that I've always wondered is I've got VTEC on my uh, beautiful Honda Odyssey, but there's also DOHC and SOHC. Yeah. So, what does that mean? So valve trains and their associated subsystems and new designs and stuff like that. Like we could do 10 episodes on all this because the rabbit hole is very deep. Um, okay. At its most simplest form uh, is in what kind of. I guess kind of came first is what's known as a push rod engine, which is, you know, Chevy and the Corvette and Camaro, all American muscle cars back in the day. But most people have moved on from this design, except for notably Chevy, um, huh. used push rod engines. And what that is, is it's one camshaft located in the center of the engine. And that camshaft has push rods that go up into the cylinder heads and so on in in all the cylinder heads there's rockers so basically what happens is the cam is low in the engine 
and it spins and it pushes on these rods that go way up into the cylinder heads. And then those rods on the rocker arms, the rocker arms, a seesaw. That's all it is, is a seesaw. And so the push rod pushes up on the rocker arm and on the other side of the seesaw that goes down and pushes on the valve. So one camshaft, okay. one camshaft does exhaust and intake for both cylinder heads. Cause in like a V eight or a V six, you have two cylinder heads. Okay. Overhead cam designs, what they did was they got rid of that center camshaft entirely and they put the camshaft itself up in the cylinder head. So okay. when it says overhead cam, it literally means the cam is over the cylinder head. Overhead cam. It's it's real easy to see that word or that acronym and like think it's complex, <laughs> but it's actually super literal. Overhead. So, yep. Okay. Um, overhead cams got big originally with inline four engines because back in the muscle car days, there really weren't many, um, unless you're talking European stuff. But uh, so with like an inline four. A single overhead cam, you have the same number of camshafts as you would in a in a pushrod V8, right? It gets more complex if you have two cylinder heads because then you need at least two cams, one overhead cam in each cylinder head. So for like an inline for an inline engine, a single overhead cam is extremely simple. It it's and it's actually it's debatably a, a, a superior solution because instead of having this complex arrangement of push rods and rocker arms and all the friction associated with moving all those parts you just stick a cam right on top of the valves the cam pushes on the valve directly now in that situation then would the the single overhead cam on a four uh, inline four mm-hmm. is that still the same situation where that one camshaft it's is deploying on both of the intake and the exit valves correct okay Gotcha. Whereas on a dual overhead cam, one camshaft is designed for the intake valve and one is designed for the exhaust valve. Correct. That is what a dual overhead well. cam does. Yes. Okay. So, so you're basically having, I could just have my intake valve overhead cam break or I could have my excess, uh, exhaust camshaft break. Right. Or both. Mm-hmm. Or both. Okay. Um, gotcha. So you can imagine on a V engine with two cylinder heads, dual overhead cam, it becomes very complex because now we have four camshafts. We have intake and exhaust cams on both left and right cylinder heads. Oh, so then you have basically four. You have four four, four. four camshafts. So yeah. Oh, yeah, because you basically have two dual overhead setups, essentially. Exactly. That is what it is. So um. you might ask, why? Um. So there's some benefits here in there's some benefits here in like simplicity of the operation because like I said the complex arrangement of push rods and rocker arms and associated friction of all those components versus just having a camshaft on top um, and so you don't have to take into consideration the like with a with a standard push rod engine like the rocker arm ratio right because like the seesaw like the fat kid scooting up or the skinny kid on the end of the seesaw right um you have to calculate how much valve lift you get off of that you can just get rid of that and your lift is just how aggressive 
the teardrop shape of the camshaft is or isn't. Um, the other thing is the camshaft, the valve train, all that, that is probably the most important part of the engine when we talk about how an engine behaves. So if an engine doesn't, if the, the RPM range and how it makes power, if it makes power low in the RPM band or high, uh, if it makes a lot of power or a lot of torque, if it's smooth, if it's, you know, kind of lopey, <laughs> like it doesn't want to idle, um, that's all dictated by the valve train. Wow. Okay. And it's, it's due to a thing you alluded to. So, you know, you say your timing belt. A timing belt's important because this 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 is what timing is. And what timing is, is you know you got a piston and a crankshaft spinning, right? Pistons go up and down. You got a camshaft spinning. Valves go up and down. But what matters is when the valves do that relative to where the piston's at. Because, go ahead. Because the timing belt goes around basically the... We'll keep it simple. Two or four, however many camshafts you have, and then that also goes around the engine itself. The that crank is controlling the piston, the, the crankshaft, yeah, correct? Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying that's is that's how they're connected. What I'm saying is, if you have four discrete cycles on an engine, suck, squeeze, bang, blow. When you suck, you need to have the intake valve open, so you're sucking in air and fuel. And then when you squeeze, so the piston goes up to compress the mixture. If you have either valve open, you're just going to push all that shit out the open valve. <laughs> Worthless. Yeah. Right. So the valves need to close. And then when you bang and it explodes, you also need to have the valves closed. Otherwise, the explosion is just going to go out and not produce any work on the piston to rotate it. And then when you blow, you need to have the exhaust valve open to push all that exhaust gas out and then go kill the ozone layer. <laughs> John, I have I have a question. Yes. In a dual overhead cam setup, do both camshafts need to be identical? And Typically, is there any sort of advantage to not well, them being identical? That in, is in, a, in, that is kind of a forum debate can of worms you're you're yeah. tiptoeing on. Um <laughs> Nine times out of ten, the exhaust and the intake cam are identical. However, they don't necessarily need to be. Um, and what you will see on a lot of like built cars is sometimes guys will specify a different camshaft arrangement for the intake and the exhaust. I think I see this most in like Supra and Skyline GTR. Take a drink. Uh, builds where, and this is getting into some more stuff, but where they'll like spec a different duration or something for the exhaust cam relative to the intake because it's supposed to spool the turbo better. So right. So j just to kind of clear up a last point, one of the 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 reason that like dual overhead cam became a thing or single overhead cam became a thing is it's simpler, it's less parts, so it's cheaper to manufacture. Um, but when emissions and power come into play, it's a lot easier to create a high-performance cylinder head with overhead cam arrangements because it allows me very simple and easy tuning 
of the timing of the engine. Like I can adjust when the intake valve opens and how much and for how long and when the exhaust valve opens and how much and for how long independently. Cause I can change where those camshafts are in their rotation. Whereas on a push rod engine, I can't do that because I have to buy a new camshaft. So push rods are basically a time of the past outside of Chevy because Chevy more or less. Um, and this allows you to change the variable valve timing we're talking whoa, about here. Variable valve timing is a whole different. Let's not. Yeah, go there. that's OK. A, let's not go. It's a whole another Pandora's box. Yeah. It okay. allows you to change the valve timing. Allows <laughs> you to change the valve timing. Um, and so I, I got to variable valve timing through my beautiful VTEC, which we'll get into. I'm no, sure actually, VTEC is not variable valve timing. That's a different thing. Like I said, we could do right. 10 episodes on this. Okay, see, I'm asking the questions here, but let's keep it basic. So, no, what we're venturing into, like, cam specifications. So, cams are spec for lift and duration. So, lift is how much. So, when we're talking about opening the valve, lift is how much the valve opens. How much fuel or how much air is coming in or how much fuel or how much air is going out. Well, and, I mean, and the, yeah. Go, what's the that? measurement is is also in degrees correct john well that's for like well, a, hold on so the where am i it's lift and duration and it's lift at a certain degree of rotation so right so lift is how much the valve opens so it's how big the hole gets as you can imagine okay. high lift high power low lift tends to get better miles per gallon and a more smooth running engine um, duration is how long the valve is held open. Um, so like that teardrop shape that we're talking about, you can imagine if the teardrop is very narrow, that would be a low duration camshaft. If the teardrop is basically a rectangle, that would be a very high duration camshaft. Here's why this matters. Duration is what, uh, dictates the RPM range of the engine. Because as your engine spins higher, like as your RPM of your engine goes up, you need to hold the valve open longer because air and fuel will only move so fast. So okay. if you can imagine at 2,000 RPMs versus 8,000 RPMs, at 8,000 RPMs, everything, all these rotations and these openings and closings are happening, but they're happening four times as fast. So at, you know, at 2000 RPM, a, a valve will open, uh, 500 times. Am I, hold on. Am I fucking that up? <laughs> um, <laughs> whereas at four, at 8,000 RPM, it'll open 2000 times in a, in a given, in, in a minute, essentially. So everything's So happening. basically it's just happening faster. And so your, your intake and your amount coming in is still the amount of same pressure of air and fuel coming in, but you need to give it longer to get it to fill up the actual amount that you need to comparative yeah. to when it was a lower RPM. It's like if, you know, if, if I'm, you know, if you hit, if you're trying to like roll underneath a garage door that's closing and you can only run a certain speed, the garage door has to close faster or slower or yep. you're not going to make it. Okay. So, yeah. And then you got to roll. <laughs> right. So by, by holding, so what happens is if you put a low duration camshaft 
in an engine and then you try and rev the engine up really high, you will make less power because the cam won't be held open long enough. And that's why so that, people put that... big cams on their engine. But it makes the engine ah. make the engine makes less power at low RPM because what happens is it's held open too long. And so you get interesting. And so you get pumping losses. So what happens is you hold it open for so long that you get all the air and fuel into the cylinder that you're going to get. And then it starts to go back out. It starts to turn around and leave. And that's why aggressive camshafts make less power at low RPMs. But then as you spin the engine up higher, the amount of time that the valve is held open hits a sweet spot where the air and fuel doesn't have time to go back out. And now you make more power. So that was a thing I, I've seen a lot looking at cars, right? So like it says at a certain amount of RPMs is when you're getting your maximum horsepower. That's basically what this is talking about. So like yeah. my Honda Odyssey has right. 250 horse ponies at 5,000 RPMs. Correct. It does not have it at 2,000 mm -hmm. RPM. Right. So that's essentially what this is saying is the maximum value and functioning of this camshaft system is at 5,000 RPMs. Yeah, and you know, there's well, not there's, the camshaft system specifically, more like the engine. Yeah, okay, the whole, the whole the whole the whole system. Yeah, there's other things that affect this. If it's turbocharged, the size of the turbo will affect the power band. The, if it's supercharged, it'll it'll have all the power up front. You okay. Know? Yeah. Okay. But this has this has a integral part in that due to it being the timing and kind of around what those are set because the cams are obviously metal teardrops. You can't really adjust those. Yeah, so you, you buy a different right. size of teardrop, essentially. Okay. Um, and so that's why, you know, when you see this a lot in the V8 crowd, sometimes in the Skyline crowd and Super crowd, but, like, when somebody's like, oh, I'm going to put a big gnarly camshaft on it, and in the car, there's a video of it idling, and it's like... <laughs> like, it kind of sounds like it's going to fall on its face. And a lot of gearheads like that sound. That's cool. I, I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. I like that okay. sound. But is that because of all the extra air? What John, that John is. is yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish, uh, finish. Yeah. What that is, that, that stumbly sound at idle, is a big ass camshaft that makes good power at seven, eight thousand RPM, and it runs like Dookie at a thousand RPM at idle. And so that. that lopey cam noise is the engine not wanting to run at idle. Uh, and I will say from personal experience, this is something that uh, I, I'm kind of dealing with, not dealing with, but something that I have to address here shortly is the cams in the GTR are what you would say typically just in a normal conversation, 264 degrees intake and 272 on the exhaust. So they're not the same um, camshafts as I was foreboding there earlier. Yeah, and so so that's a duration. So Lenny just quoted duration for his GTR camshaft. So that duration. Right. So what he's talking about, 264 means 360 is a circle, right? Um, so that means that that cam is opening the valve for 264 degrees of its 360 degrees of, of spin. So... Neat. Not not full. That's not full opening. That's just like cracking it. But the the cam is like exerting some pressure on the valve for two hundred and sixty four degrees of that circle. 
and he's got two okay. he's got 272 degrees on his exhaust. That's what he was talking about about different cams. The theory behind that and it's somewhat unproven, but the theory behind Yeah, that, I would say. Yeah, the theory behind that is on a turbo engine holding the exhaust valve open longer allows more energy from combustion to get to the turbocharger and spool it. Which okay, that's in theory makes sense. Um, but yeah, okay, yeah. so that's good to hear the technical Ooh. jargon of what a camshaft is with the 360 and it staying open longer. Um, I'm still so so there's if we're talking like a standard V6, right? Okay. Hybrid engine. That means that I have four camshafts. Yep. Okay. Dual overhead um, cam. Dual overhead cam. That so be, that's going to be if I that would if be I pop my engine in my V6, I'm looking down at my engine. I'm basically looking at those two different block sectors that are showing me where my cams are. Yep. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then that's the belt that attaches everything. It's pretty simple. I I think I have a way better understanding of camshafts now than walking into this. Yeah, and uh, so here's an important part. The reason why your timing belt is important is. So the timing belt is what makes sure that the camshaft is spinning in sync with the cylinders. Almost all modern engines, back in the day when cars were slower, this wasn't as much of an issue, but almost all modern okay. engines are what's called an interference engine. And what that means is that the valves, because so the cam's pushing on the valves and they open, they go into the combustion chamber. The valves at a point in time occupy the same space, the same physical location as the piston. Okay. So what happens is in an interference engine, the valve opens and then it closes and then the piston comes up. But if the valve was open at the same time, the piston was up, they would touch so the reason, yeah, that'd be bad. yeah, that would be very <laughs> bad. That would cause a catastrophic failure of the engine. So the reason yeah, okay. that your timing belt is an important thing to keep checked is if your timing belt breaks, your pistons smash into your valves and your engine is absolutely toast. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. So it's not what you want. Yeah, that's goodbye valves. Goodbye pistons. Goodbye engine yeah so in a non-interference engine which i don't know if any modern engines are there were some back in the day but in a non-interference engine that means that the valves don't protrude into the combustion chamber enough to ever be in the same place as the piston so even if it broke hmm. the va there will never be a valve that would touch a piston um interesting but you know as, is there a reason for that is there a reason that they need to occupy that space yeah 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 it's uh it's it's dictated by the combustion ratio of the engine so like so modern cars emissions more power you have higher compression which means the combustion chamber is smaller which means there's less space for the valves to physically occupy uh okay and higher lift in the camshaft so that the valve goes into the combustion chamber further like a physical distance and it's held open longer um so it's, it's really compression and the valve lift how far does the valve go in how small is the combustion chamber but nowadays um camshaft lift is higher and combustion ratios are higher and so there, there's almost no way 
you could like grind really gangster reliefs into your pistons. Like you like mm-hmm. grind a freaking step into the pistons. Um, and actually, like on motorcycle engines and most high performance engine builds, you need to grind reliefs into the piston anyway. Huh. Because on most motorcycle engines, because motorcycle engines are like super high compression, it's like 12, 13 to 1. Um, whereas most car engines are around 9 to 10 to 1. Um, and the and the camshaft lift is really high. Uh, on most motorcycle engines, you can hit the piston with the valve using the amount of like adjustment that is in the cam sprockets from the factory. So, so the way you set the timing, right. Is like you adjust like the teeth on the, the cam gear, like the belt. Cause there's usually like an alignment mark. There's alignment mark on all the cam gears. There's alignment mark on the cam oh, gear. Okay. I've seen this before in engine builds. Okay. Yeah, okay. And that's how you know everything's in time, right? The cams and the crank are adjusted. So you can either, rotate a gear like a tooth or two or sometimes the camshaft gears will have slots on them so that when you make the bolts looser you can just rotate the cam in place relative to the slots and so that the cam is hitting the valves at a different time relative to the crankshaft rotation um and on most motorcycles you need to have like a (laughs) it's called like a piston checker stop you thread it into the spark plug hole and it physically touches the piston and won't let it come up any higher. And like, you have to, you actually have to actually have to check how much clearance your valve has on the piston. That's cool. I mean, this explains why timing belts, you should replace them. Uh, and why it's probably expensive to do so because that sounds like a pain in the ass for your mechanic to have to do versus an oil change. (laughs) Timing belts, I would say are, are not, they're just a little bit more involved, uh, yeah. not necessarily more difficult. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was in the garage working on the bikes. I, I, I was thinking about this to myself. Nothing that we're talking about here is particularly difficult or complex. The issue is that there is simply zero room for error. Right, that yeah, that's sense. the thing about vi- the valve train. It's a very precise sort of structure. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. The tolerances of things are, are very. You mess it up, you don't have a car anymore. Right. Whereas if you mess up your oil change, you've got some oil on your garage floor. Well, and the thing is that on some cars, it might take you four or five hours of tearing the damn thing apart to get to the timing belt. And then right. if you put the timing belt on, best case scenario, your engine runs like shit and it's another four or five hours to redo it. Worst case scenario, you don't <laughs> have an engine. So just the error margin is very slim. But. It's not yeah, and hard. and anything could be, uh, like the smallest minute thing could be uh, needing adjustment. Like I'm, I'm thinking of a time where I had a uh, some ticking noises in the uh, in the GTR's engine, and I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure it out for weeks, and John over here was telling me, "Man, it sounds like you need to do a lash adjustment, lash, hey. lash adjustment." And I'm like, nah, that can't be it. Plus, I'm like, man, that means I have to, you know, take apart covers and <laughs> do this and that. And yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't too um, experienced with it. I, I had never done it personally, right? And so I was very stubborn in trying to get it done. And for weeks and weeks, I was trying to figure other things out, other things out. And then finally, <laughs> I caved in and was like, man, okay, I'll just adjust, adjust the lash and then see where where that takes me. Uh, and sure enough, it was. And it's just uh, like a little. Uh, in the in the GTR, it's solid 
lifters, but there's it's just like a little shim. You have to reshim. Um, is what I had to do. So so it could be like just the little minute, the smallest thing, uh, could turn your whole engine inside out or you know not make it run optimally. So real basically, real quick. So lash. I mean, Lenny mentioned lash. Lash is the amount of space that exists between the camshaft and the valve when the camshaft is not pushing on the valve. Okay. So there's a minute bit of just free air, open space between the cam when it's not opening the valve, and that is called lash. And that is a spec. It needs to be within spec. And what that is is it allows for thermal expansion of the engine as the parts get hot they expand and so it makes sure they're not touching and so that your camshaft isn't uh. grinding on the valve when it's supposed to be closed and on most cars like your honda odyssey it has what's called a hydraulic lifter so the lifter the camshaft physically pushes the lifter and the lifter pushes on the valve um and a hydraulic lifter is a lifter that is pressurized by oil pressure from the engine so when your engine's running, the oil pressure extends the lifter and it makes contact with the cam. In high performance okay. engines, they have what's called a solid lifter, which means there's no extension, no compression. It's just a piece of metal. And so you don't adjust lash on a hydraulic lifter because it automatically will compress a little bit as it wears. Yeah. Uh, whereas Makes on sense. a me mechanical lifter, there's no way to adjust that. And the way that valve systems are designed the softest metal in the system is the valve seat in the cylinder head so that's the thing that camshaft sits in when it's sealed okay and so what happens is you would think when things wear that that lash would get wider but it doesn't because the valve and the cam are made of stronger metal than the cylinder head so what actually wears is the seat so what happens is as your engine gets old the lash gets tighter the valve comes closer to the camshaft. And so that's like completely opposite of what you would expect. Usually when things wear out, they get loose and sloppy. When a cam, when a valve train wears out, it gets tighter. And so that's why if your valves, if you have solid lifters and they're out of spec, they'll tick because that tick is actually the sound of your valve physically touching the cam when it shouldn't. Metal. metal. Yeah. And so you adjust the okay. lash by putting... There's shims, basically, and the shims don't serve a useful, like, mechanical purpose. The shims allow you to service the system and keep it in check. Um, and so there's Gotta just, love shims. Yeah. So the shims are just there to take up space, and so as it gets tight and it starts ticking, you have to take the valve covers off, replace the shims for thinner ones, and there you go. Right. There you go. What so it I, sounds like you... What I learned is that that's a it's a regular regular interval service uh, on the GTR, which I didn't know. It is. It's uh, like, so I, I learned something new when I was reading up on that before it, I did it. Is it thirty or sixty thousand K? I think it's like sixty thousand K. Yeah. Yeah. Often replace shims on a GTR, and well, that's I'm guessing any high performance vehicle, basically. Damn near, man. Because yeah. um, hydraulic lifters are not in high RPM engines because they're not reliable. Um, as it starts spinning okay. faster and the forces in the engine get higher, they start to collapse because they're just being held open by oil pressure and they start to collapse. And so for high performance engines, they just put solid lifters in them. They say 
F you, dude, you got to check these every few thousand miles. There's nothing to do about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Take care of your fast car. Yeah. And in the motorcycle yeah, world, pretty much. I think, I think car people are kind of taken aback by having to do valve adjustments in the motorcycle world. You typically have to adjust like valves. Normality. It's like every 10,000 miles. So we're just like, yeah, yeah, we just check valve lash all the time. We're just always doing it. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't probably why you were harping on me for so long. It was because <laughs> I've, I've done valve lash on my Daytona. Like I do it in the winter, even when it's not up for service, just to be sure. <laughs> That's like Zen and motorcycle maintenance type of stuff right there, man. It is. Just it check is. everything. Just check everything. Well, it sounds like to me, uh, make sure if you have any sort of ticking sounds and you're not an expert, consult an expert. Otherwise your engine could explode. Uh, John, you are also, besides an expert on camshafts, you're an expert on ugly cars. Indeed. So uh, what do you wish you were driving that's an ugly car? I'd like to know. We're going to ask you questions to find out. All right, guys. So we're going to play a game called What I Wish I Was Driving. In this game, it's basically 20 questions with cars. They have 20 yes or no questions to figure out what car I'm thinking of. Uh, it can only be yes or no questions. And if they guess, they get one guess of the actual car. If they guess the wrong car, the game is over, regardless of what question we're on. So they got to make it count. Um, for this particular car, you don't have to guess a generation. There's only one. And uh, I think that's about it. So with that, let the questioning begin. Is this car German? German, no. Bold Naturally move. aspirated? In a no. Hmm. Rear-wheel drive. Oh shit! Actually, hold on. <laughs> Question you three. You don't know. No, Here we go. There's only there's only one of them. One. At least with Lenny's. Lenny's oh. had fifteen different cars. This John. Is a, you only got one. This is a weird one. Um, it is not rural drive. No. <laughs> okay. Is this a Japanese car, John? Japanese, no. Man, this is the house of no. Or in a row. Is this a four wheel drive car? Is this a four or all wheel drive car? Yes. Mild hint. Interesting. I feel like we're talking about rally cars now. Is this car Italian? Is this car Italian? Not Ooh. exactly. <laughs> Man, it feels like I have deja vu. Yeah, this is uh this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, okay. My answer to your question is the hand purse. <laughs> The answer to the question is the hand purse. Um, uh, okay. I, I, I'll say this. This car was not manufactured and sold by an Italian car manufacturer. Was this car designed by an Italian ah, I was gonna say, that's manufacturer? Hold on. <laughs> I think you should... I would recommend that you say ask if the car was designed by Italians was the car designed by italians yes okay so italian's not necessarily an, an italian manufacturer mm. i was kind of thinking p and Fernini. p p how do you say it pin and farina pin and farina yeah that, what yeah um, there's not one italian designer that makes really ugly cars p and farina 
Is that the guy? Okay. Uh, I, I wouldn't say he makes exclusively ugly cars. I mean, he's they're kind of the best car ever made, arguably. Right, um, but they're definitely a little different. Uh, Pininfarina is uh, responsible for some of the most gorgeous cars to ever grace the planet Earth. So careful there. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah but the spectrum is broad there. However, for them. I, I this is not. I'm not considering this a question. I don't think Pininfarina was involved with this car. For the record, did this car rally? Did this car rally? No. Is this a front engine configuration car? Front engine, no. Interesting. Is it a Renault? Is it a Renault? No. Renault. Hmm. Can I make a suggestion? Yes. We might want to consider adding a common question that we ask, and this is a hint, because uh, it's the new year and I'm feeling generous. Um, Fair enough. You might <laughs> consider asking, is this considered an exotic? Oh, okay. So you're adding the exotic qualifier here based on Lenny's last choice of not picking an exotic last time. <laughs> well, Lenny didn't even pick a car that was cool. Yeah. 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 And before that, we had basically only picked cool semi-exotic cars. Not necessarily. Like when yeah, I did the, okay. when I did the mm-hmm. Nissan Pulsar GTIR, that's not exotic. That's I wouldn't not exotic. I wouldn't even consider my Skyline exotic. All right, is this car exotic, John? Is it exotic? Absolutely. Here's the problem with the term exotic. What does it mean? What does it yeah, mean? Yeah, it's a very subjective kind of term. There, I feel. I understand Especially in that. relation to car. I understand that, but no one would argue this particular case. Interesting. Okay. Have we have we determined where what continent this car is from? No, are we going to no. America, John? No. Okay. So it's gotta probably be something Euro. Because we're not America, we're not Japan, we're not German. And Italians it's, were involved. It, Italians were involved. It's either mid or rear engine because it's not front engined. But it's, it's not, not rear wheel drive. It's all wheel drive, four wheel drive. It's not naturally aspirated. John, does this have a V? Ooh. Is the engine in this car V6, V8, or V12? Yes. Okay. I think this might. Dang it! It's not an Italian manufacturer, though. I was going to say it's going to for a Ferrari. I'm going to do you a favor because we've determined that it's an exotic. You can just throw out V6, so it's either a V8 or a V12. I mean, there's there's a few exotics I can think of with V6. What's an ugly looking? What's what's a hand? Yeah. Okay. So what's an ugly looking? So it's either a V8 or V12, not Italian, but made by Italians. Correct. All-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. It's got to be turboed or supercharged because he said no to natural aspiration. Didn't drive rally. 
Was this a did, did this car race in the GT series, John? I don't think so, but let me what? double check to uh, make times. sure. Oh, uh no, this car <laughs> this car did race in a GT series. It is it's not known for doing that, but it did happen. Is this car French in a way? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. It's very interesting. Was this car made in the 90s? Was this car made in the 90s? Yes. Does this car have four turbos? Four turbos? Yes. Oh, Lenny's on something here. Lenny's on. <laughs> Lenny's on something. Lenny has. Oh smelled man. Blood. Lenny smells blood in the water. Oh here man, I think that was uh, question fifteen, right? Uh, no, that was question seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah, you, you got two oh, questions. I guess. I'm I'm glad that I uh, checked the the score there. Um, shoot. Or turbo. So that's a lot of turbo. That is a lot. I of mean, turbo. there's only. I think there's only two, and John said it wasn't American, so that eliminates one of them. <laughs> um, John, is this a Bugatti? Is this a Bugatti? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. And now the Italian confusion makes sense. Mm. And the sort of French, because we discussed this. So, Ryan, it could be one of two things. Okay. Uh, and I th think... The next, I should have rephrased my 90s question a little bit better in hindsight here. Well, yeah, because how many Bugattis were made in uh, the 90s? Well, no, I didn't spec. I mean, it's the EB110. I'm certain of it. It's got to be. Because now I think about it, I mean, uh, the Veyron was a 2000s only car. And before its predecessor, and I mean, it's ugly. That's that's John's hint right there. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think I check checks all the box. I just don't know. John? Sir. Shoot the shot. Shoot the shot. Did Jeremy Clarkson review this car on <laughs> Top Gear? And was the interior of the car that he reviewed white with blue accents? Uh, let me... In order oh, to answer yeah. that responsibly... That's a poll. That's a poll. In order to answer this responsibly, I need to... You said white with blue accented interior? Ah, oh, man, I think so. Uh, I'm trying not to play a Top Gear video. <laughs> I don't see any shots of the Dagon. There's... Thing. I think it was white with blue. It was something French and gaudy. Was this, was this in the? This would have been Top Gear, not Grand Tour. Right? No, yeah, this is in the. And this is in the nineties. This is yeah. like an old pixelated video. It's probably circulating YouTube somewhere. Lenny, but I'm I, pretty sure. It, I think you yes. should take your question back. <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna say that. Don't don't make me answer this because it'll confuse you. Damn it. <laughs> So I think yeah. So that that kind of answers my question anyway. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything, or else I'm just going to take the I'm going to shoot the J here. I, I mean, I don't know how else we would narrow it down. We know it's a Bugatti now. 
Um, how many different models were there in Bugatti, Bugatti made, in the nineties? Bugatti made all of like three cars in the modern era. <laughs> right. So like there can't be that many. So like what started in the nineties? John, is this the Bugatti EB one ten? Lenny, it is indeed the Bugatti yes! EB one ten. That man smelled blood and went down that path. We so, got it. Uh, the the car that Jeremy reviewed had a black interior, but it was the sky blue car. And, ah, um, sky blue car. That's what I. That's what was sticking out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. Some white rear thing. end on this thing is goofy. What <laughs> goofy looking car? So look, I am a a consummate Bugatti hater, but <laughs> I thought the I thought the EB one ten was pretty effing cool. Uh, it was for its time, yes. It had. I think really Shumi Shumi has had one. Probably it had really it ugly was, headlights. It was yellow, I think. Yeah, I actually don't think uh, it's that ugly uh, of a car, but the headlights are just like what the hell? Like were recessed and all weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think Bugatti to me is famous for making super ugly cars, but I I have a real soft spot for this car in particular. Uh, it was very ahead of its time. I think. I think I was just about to say. I think it's very. I think it's very ahead of it. I think it was very ahead of its time. There. I like it, Bugatti's design choices. <laughs> I don't know about it. They're all of their design choices. I love. I mean, they I were definitely this. ahead of the curve in terms of bubble yeah. style bodywork. Um, that C shape on popular, the doors. Yeah. Super cool. I mean, uh, I, for sure. I think the EB110 is like ten times prettier than a Veyron, but. Um, I would agree, but you know, I'm just a sucker for nostalgia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, Bugatti's a weird one. So, so the EB110, there's a period in time where Bugatti was like an Italian company, and the EB110 was the only car they produced during their Italian ownership. So, his, huh. yeah, historically, it's a French company, even though the owner, like the the guy that created it, um, the heck was his name? I mean, his last name was Bugatti. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the the owner is an Italian, Ettore Bugatti. Thank yeah. Uh, the o- so he's an Italian guy. It's a French company. For a period of time, the Italians bought him out. They made this car. Then they went bankrupt. Then they got re- like invigorated, reacquired. Yeah, reacquired yeah. as a French company under VAG Volkswagen. Um, so they're probably more than any other company, their history and lineage is kind of a mess. Um, but it is technically French. And they're still making their cars, their cars at a loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because why? Why not? Technically I, I, French, I, I, a lot of Italian DNA. The uh, Which explains kind of the goofy looks and goofy choices with the French stuff. And I, it's a Citra, not the... Uh, the other one that I like that has the C door shape that's really cool. Yeah, Wait, the, the EB one ten was four wheel drive, all wheel drive. I did not know that. Yeah, was, like that just clicked on me. Yep, I always thought it was rear wheel drive. That's what I'm saying. Mm. It was very ahead of its time in that respect. Mid engine, yeah. wheel drive, V twelve had four turbos. I think Bugatti more than anybody else does. Like they do stuff where it's like they don't ask should we, they just ask can we. Well, then they right. have the W <laughs> engine now, so it's a V twelve, but not a V twelve. Sort of weird thing. Well, so that is the W W sixteen. Yeah, it's sixteen yeah. cylinder, and that is right. a direct 
that's direct DNA from their Volkswagen acquisition. Right. Because Volkswagen right. started making W engines where the cylinder head had offset cylinders, not in a line. And so mm-hmm. Bugatti just took that to the nth degree. But the the benefit is that that 16-cylinder in the Veyron, Veyron, however you pronounce it, uh, it's it's only as long as like a it's like a V10 because of how cool. the cylinders are offset like that. So that's it's a space. Well, I'm one for one in the new year, boys. Hey, so, there we go. One for one. There we go. That's been another episode of Zero Lift. Uh, you've been hanging out with Ryan, John, and Lenny. Later, 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 boys. Learning. Keep it pinned. Keep it safe. We'll see you next episode. Peace.